Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel's expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sonia, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care workshop. Um, and this is a workshop that's being done in, in collaboration with the Longevity Foundation, and we're delighted to be working with them on this program today. Um, and uh, today's program is also um, a collaboration between many other lung cancer organizations as well. However, I have to say that our lead organization today in the lung cancer community working with us is the, lung cancer, is the Longevity Foundation. Um, I want to um, also acknowledge that um, there are lots of you on the call today um, all over, from all over the United States, um, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Caracas, India, Portugal, and United Kingdom. And there's about 500, 359 of you on the call today, so a lot of you on the call today. It's a large call, um, and, um, and we look forward to your being on the call, and we also look forward to your coming up with questions during the Q&A as well. And um, today's program is supported by the Celgene Corporation, Novartis Oncology, and Pfizer, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on the program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. Dr. Chris is Attending Physician, Thoracic Oncology Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Wild Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Chris is going to provide an overview of lung cancer, including standard of care, the role of precision medicine and genomics in informing treatment options in chemotherapy, targeted cancer therapies, and new treatment approaches. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and uh, welcome, uh, everyone, to the call today. Uh, I have a bit of a daunting task, and I'll, I'll try to um, uh, make things as clear and concise as I can. I think the first thing I would want to start out with is that the, the topic today is, is not lung cancer, but it's lung cancers. I think there's a growing awareness that it's not one illness, that just as it is um, uh, unique in each person, the various aspects of the disease are unique as well. Uh, and I think more and more our care is uh, uh, changing and understanding based on uh, our uh, realization that we're dealing with a lot of different diseases, and we need to nail down what disease each person has to provide the best treatment. Um, to start with basics, to diagnose lung cancer in 2019 is that you must have a biopsy. Uh, I know that there's a lot of talk now about liquid biopsies, People sometimes think lung cancer can be diagnosed on a scan. It cannot. You need a biopsy, either with a needle or with a surgery or with a removal of a bodily fluid. So you must have a biopsy. Once that biopsy is obtained, it goes to our pathology colleagues, and, and they are uh, more and more uh, the wizards here. And, and we truly cannot do our job uh, without the uh, pathologist who look at the tissue specimens removed uh, to make the diagnosis of, of lung cancers. 
the first thing they do is they look at the cells that have been removed and they can tell visually whether or not they represent cancer. And that's the first step. We have to be 100% sure there's a cancer there. The second thing that's done in uh, evaluating folks with lung cancers is to figure out what kind of lung cancer it is. And there's three major types. It's the adenocarcinomas, the squamous cell carcinomas, and the small cell lung cancers. And it's the pathologist, by looking at the cells under the microscope and also by doing additional tests where they stain the cells and learn different things about them and help subtype these cells. This is absolutely critical because the kind of therapy we recommend depends on what kind of uh, cancer cell people see. The other thing that's become more important now is an additional test on the cancer cells, a staining of the cancer cells for a certain protein called PDL1. PDL1 protein is used to help doctors decide about the use of immunotherapies and also about the use of chemotherapy with immunotherapies. The, the other important aspect of the pathologist is that they are the people that look at the molecular characteristics of the cells. Uh, Carolyn already mentioned about precision medicine, and to a great extent what precision medicine is, it's analyzing the cancer cells removed from the uh, person with cancer and looking at the genes that are deranged in the cancer cell, not, not in your own, not in your body, not the normal cells, but in the cancer cells. And there is uh, evidence of genetic damage of certain types that can point to very specific treatments. The most common ones, which, which some of you may know, are a, a, a gene called EGFR, another one called uh, ALK. Those genes, uh, when they're discovered to be deranged, point to specific therapies. Uh, and, and, one of the, and the one of the first steps in choosing the best therapy is to do these genetic analyses. A couple of practical uh, consequences of these different biopsies, um, and that is the different kinds of tests you do take time. Generally, when you have a surgery, you don't get these biopsy results for approximately a week. When you do a, a needle biopsy uh, or a fluid removal and an examination of, let's say, uh, a fluid underneath the lung, a pleural effusion, that takes from three to five days. And uh, I know this is a, a huge point of uh, concern and, and anxiety, but these molecular tests, the full molecular tests, take anywhere from two to four weeks. And it's not because they're sitting uh, on a shelf waiting to be tested. The test actually takes one to two weeks. So um, uh, you need to discuss that with your doctor and the members of your healthcare team. How long does it take to get those results? But there is there is a lag time, and these results are absolutely crucial to deciding how to treat patients. The, the second thing that's done is you need to decide exactly where the cancer is in the body. Uh, and various tests are done to do that, uh, CAT scans, MRI, and PET scans. But again, please remember, those tests are done after the diagnosis of cancer is uh, uh, confirmed and to help decide where the cancer is. How do you treat the cancer? Well, it, it's determined based on the kind of cancer we find uh, by the pathologic analyses and by the stage. And more and more, uh, what is happening is the, um, uh, once this diagnosis is made, once we know where the cancer is, it's then choosing all the different ways we have to fight the cancer. And we have more and more ways to do it. We have surgery, radiation, traditional chemotherapy, so-called targeted therapies, 
angiogenesis inhibitors, breaking down the blood vessels that feed the cancer, and uh, immunotherapeutic agents. These agents uh, energize the immune system to fight the cancer. So in fighting cancer now, all of these treatments are on the table, and it's up to your physician and care team to decide which of these things to do, what order to do them, do you do them together, um, those are the decisions that need to be made. So I want you to be prepared to know that it's very uh, likely that many different things are going to be recommended to you, uh, particularly over the course of the illness. For the lung cancer that is confined to the lung and the immediate adjacent lymph nodes, surgery is the cornerstone of therapy. But in 2019, we always generally recommend something in addition to surgery, either a, a drug treatment, radiation, possibly an immune treatment. For patients that have uh, cancer in the lung and lymph nodes in the lower part of the neck, uh, so-called stage 3B lung cancer, the cornerstone there is radiation, and uh, Dr. Rosenzweig will be talking about that shortly. But in addition to that, we're, we're constantly recommending uh, traditional chemotherapies and immunotherapies. And for patients that have cancer that has left the lung, um, we make a critical decision about whether or not there's a target there, one of the gene targets, like I mentioned, EGFR, ALK, HER2, RET, ROS, uh, and others. And if you have one of those targets, you generally get a targeted therapy, which is generally a pill. If you don't have a target, and that's the majority of patients, you get an immunotherapeutic agent with chemotherapy. And the type of chemotherapy is decided based on those um, uh, cell types that you find. So squamous cancers get one type of chemotherapy, adenocarcinomas get another, and uh, small cell lung cancers get yet another. Uh, they all get an immunotherapy uh, if they have no target, but they get different chemotherapies. So I hope you uh, uh, heard that, number one, we do uh, a lot better now in, in fighting uh, cancer because we have so many more ways of fighting it. Uh, also, the day that you're going to get just one treatment, I'm just going to have surgery, I'm just going to have radiation, that's pretty uh, uncommon nowadays. And you need to expect that your physicians will be thinking about all these different types of treatments, talking about them at each stage of the illness. Uh, and that's something that's changed pretty radically in the last three to five years, that all of these different kinds of ter therapies are on the table, no matter if, if the cancer is very localized or if the cancer has been metastatic. Um, I urge you to please work with your healthcare team, make sure you understand the options available, and that all the options are, are uh, considered at each decision point in your illness. Also, a reminder for you to put together your own team, too. Um, this call uh, in my talk here has been complicated. It is complicated, and I urge you to have plenty of uh, ears there to help you make the decisions. Uh, make sure you are comfortable with your healthcare team. Ask them for the information you and your team need to help make a decision, uh, and, and that's the way we're going to get the best results, working together using all the tools we have today. And uh, I just want to leave by saying that we continue to make strides I think all of us are very excited about the role of immunotherapy. You know, we finally have patients, even with metastatic disease, that have received an immunotherapy that are cancer-free five or more years later. That gives those patients their life back. It gives 
all of us great hope that we're on the right track and we're going to continue to find better ways uh, to fight lung cancers. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chris. That was outstanding, and what a wonderful way to start this call off with all this wonderful information. So thank you so much, and thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Robert Daly. Dr. Daly is medical oncologist, assistant attending the Thoracic Oncology Service Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Daly will be presenting clinical trial updates, managing side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Daly. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to speak today. I wanted to start by discussing this important topic of managing side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. In patients with advanced lung cancer, the, one of the primary goals of systemic therapy is often to reduce the symptom burden from cancer with the concurrent goal of improving quality of life. Now, some patients will have only mild to moderate side effects from treatment and are able to continue routine activities, including employment during treatment. But other patients may have more intensive symptoms from their disease and treatment. In some patients, surgery, radiation, or both may be indicated to treat disease-related symptoms. In listening to Dr. Chris, um, we understand that there are many different therapies that can be used to address lung cancer. When we think of the traditional platinum-based chemotherapy regimens that are commonly used in lung cancer, the major side effects that patients can experience include nausea, anemia, or low red blood cell counts, neutropenia, or low white blood cell counts, fatigue, neuropathy, which is a numbness, tingling in the hands and feet, and GI upset, including diarrhea or constipation. Because a patient's white blood cell count may be low from treatment, they will have difficulty fighting an infection, and a fever and other infectious symptoms is a reason to call their provider immediately, as they may need uh, immediate intervention, such as antibiotics. Immunotherapy, which we also just discussed, is also now commonly used either alone or in combination with chemotherapy in patients with lung cancer. As Dr. Chris described, immune checkpoints are proteins that act as brakes on the immune system, and the therapy immune checkpoint inhibitors target these proteins. Blocking these checkpoints takes the brakes off the immune system and allows it to attack the cancer cells. However, as a side effect, the immune system may end up causing inflammation in healthy, functioning parts of the body. The immune-related side effects from these therapies can be broad, including fatigue, rash, pneumonitis, which is inflammation of the lungs leading to shortness of breath, colitis, which is inflammation of the colon, which can lead to diarrhea, or thyroiditis, which is inflammation of the thyroid. Now, these symptoms commonly develop during the initial weeks to months of therapy, but can develop at any time or even after completion of treatment. And treatment of these side effects include discontinuation of the therapy, and um, oftentimes administration of a type of medication called a corticosteroid. This typically leads to improvement in symptoms. If you receive medical care at an emergency room or other place not familiar with your cancer treatment, though, it is important to let your healthcare team there know that you are receiving immunotherapy. There are very standard recommendations for management of these immune-related side effects, and your oncology team and the team taking care of you should be well-versed in these guidelines. 
Now, with the targeted therapies Dr. Christ also mentioned, the side effects really depend on the agent being prescribed. For example, those therapies that target the EGFR mutation, their main side effect predominantly is rash. Now, for the rash, that can often be managed by your oncologist, but they might involve a dermatologist in your care as well. Now, going forward, there's been a lot of advances in how we can manage patient symptoms while they're on active treatment. One of the most promising includes patient-reported outcomes, and that's where patients provide in a systematic way what symptoms they're experiencing between treatments. And this can either be done via the web or the patient portal. There was a study um, that was conducted here at Memorial that showed when patients report their system, symptoms in between treatment visits, this leads to an improvement in quality of life, fewer emergency room visits, and improvement in overall survival. So as technology and e-health approaches evolve, ongoing studies are looking at how we can better partner with patients to help detect their symptoms early and intervene early to improve quality of life and the effectiveness of treatment. Another recommendation to help patients manage side effects from their disease as well as their treatment is early involvement of palliative care or supportive care in their cancer treatment. So palliative care or supportive care can play a number of different roles. Their benefits include help with management of symptoms, distress, exploring, understanding, and education about illness and prognosis, assessment and support of coping needs, and assistance with medical decision-making. And so you should ask your oncologist at the start of treatment about the benefits of supportive care or palliative care integrated in with your cancer care, which gets me to the point of communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. This is very important to do at the start of your treatment. And so when you're meeting with your oncologist, it's important, as Dr. Chris said, to have a team with you, your family, others who can help with your care, and to discuss honestly and completely the diagnosis, the treatment benefits and risks, prognosis, and symptom management during your treatment. And this should be revisited frequently as you meet with your oncologist about your different treatment options. And finally, when we talk about communicating about clinical trials, these will often be brought up by your oncologist at your clinic visit. Frequently, you will discuss first the standard of care treatments available, but then you'll move to a discussion of applicable clinical trials that may be available. It's important to discuss with the oncologist at that point any safety and efficacy data known about that investigational agent, and also include in that discussion how symptoms will be managed while you're on treatment. Many of those clinical trials will depend on, as Dr. Chris described, an analysis of the pathology and the molecular profile of your underlying lung cancer. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Taylor. That was really outstanding and very informative, and very informative to understand the role of supportive care, um, palliative care, um, in the in the in the context of getting treatment as well. So I'm, I'm sure there'll be more discussion about that during the Q&A. Very important. Thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Kenneth Rosenzweig. Dr. Rosenzweig is professor and chair. 
Department of Radiation Oncology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He's System Chair, Mount Sinai Health System. Um, and Dr. Rosenzweig is going to address the role of radiation oncology, different types of radiation treatments, and how clinical trials contribute to treatment options. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rosenzweig. Hi. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner. So, as the previous speakers have discussed, there are many times we need to use radiation therapy to treat a lung cancer. So, we use radiation by uh, using a machine that delivers the radiation. So, typically, a patient comes in, lies down on a treatment table, and there's a big machine that rotates around them delivering the treatment. Um, and the big decision is how is the treatment going to be delivered, what dose is going to be done, and which areas are going to be treated. So really there are two main ways we deliver radiation. One is with a small daily dose of radiation given over many weeks, um, typically with advanced treatment techniques to make sure that the radiation is going to the tumor and not hitting normal tissue, which can cause side effects. Um, we use a small daily dose because typically uh, when this is being done, chemotherapy is being given at the same time. Uh, and if you give too high of a dose of radiation each day, the side effects would be just a little bit too much for people to tolerate. So we try to divide the radiation dose over uh, many weeks to make it easier for a patient to get through it. Uh, the other type of radiation that we do is called uh, stereotactic body radiation therapy, SBRT. It's also sometimes called stereotactic ablative radiation, and both of those terms mean exactly the same thing, just different doctors call it different things. And in this treatment is mostly for early-stage lung cancer when there's a small tumor and uh, the person is not a candidate for surgery, so we're just trying to deliver a very high dose of radiation to just that area uh, to completely eliminate the tumor there. And because we're treating such a small area, uh, we can give a higher dose of radiation uh, without any major side effects to it. So those treatments are typically longer for each day, but there's only about three to five treatments for the whole course of treatment. So it's a very exciting time where someone can come in and get their entire course of radiation in really just one week and with, do it all as an outpatient and have pretty minimal side effects from it. Uh, so uh, that's a, a big change in how we deliver radiation uh, over the uh, past uh, decade or so. There are a number of different machines that can deliver stereotactic radiation. Uh, they're all pretty much the same. Uh, they deliver a high focus dose of radiation, and uh, the physician is there at the treatment machine to make sure that it's being delivered accurately, and then um, that's, that's the whole treatment there. Uh, just like with any uh, type of technology and uh, commercial endeavor, there's a lot of marketing uh, that goes around uh, these different machines, and um, there, there are print ads and radio ads about the different machines, but the technology is fairly similar, 
and it's just a matter of which uh, type of machine any uh, hospital or institute chooses to buy. So I, I would not get uh, too concerned over the brand names of the machines. Uh, just um, it's, it's similar to the way uh, different soda companies try to sell their product as well. Um, I think uh, one of the other new exciting uh, developments in the use of radiation is combining it with immunotherapy. And you've heard some of our previous speakers to discuss this. And, and immunotherapy is a way to harvest the body's immune system to fight the cancer. And there has been some work that shows that when a tumor is hit with radiation, uh, that can stimulate the immune system just by itself. And when you add an immunotherapy um, at, the, uh, at the same time, that can rev up the body's immune system to fight the cancer. So just really in the past two years, we've started treating everyone who gets chemotherapy and radiation uh, once they're done with their treatment, those patients get immunotherapy afterwards. And it's felt to really, uh, and it's been shown to really improve the survival in people who are getting treatment. So it's it's uh, definitely something that we, we're doing for everyone who can tolerate the treatment. Um, there are newer technologies in radiation therapy that have come out. Uh, one, of the more, uh, one of the exciting ones is called proton radiation. And this is also a radiation machine, but it delivers a different type of radioactive particle uh, called a proton, which is able to deliver a very uh, strong dose of radiation at a precise point, and almost no radiation leaks past that point. So this is an excellent treatment for some very specific uh, problems that people might come in with. Uh, and mostly these are situations where the tumor is right next to a structure that can't tolerate any radiation or really has to, or the dose of radiation has to be kept to uh, an absolute minimum. So the classic situation uh, for the use of proton treatment is for children with cancer where uh, you don't want to give their growing tissue or their bone uh, any radiation because that can cause problems with uh, growth. Uh, so most children who are getting radiation, we try to get them onto a proton machine because uh, that's just a, a better treatment. For people with lung cancer, uh, we typically do not need proton radiation, but there are some specific situations where it might be helpful, and that's in situations where uh, the person has already been treated with radiation and it'd be very difficult to give a second dose of radiation to the normal tissue. So that's something where protons can be very helpful uh, to uh, deliver a dose just to the tumor that has come back and not hit the, not hit the part of the body that had been previously uh, received radiation. And then finally, uh, talking about clinical trials, um, the way we know a lot of the ways to deliver radiation and the dose of radiation to be used is because clinical trials have taken place uh, where we've tried different doses and see which one uh, works better. Uh, so some of the trials that are going on right now are mostly about uh, incorporating um, immunotherapy into treatment. So for example, there are a number of uh, trials um, available right now where uh, people with very early lung cancers are getting immunotherapy or not getting immunotherapy, and we're going to see if adding that extra treatment uh, 
uh, helps uh, prevent the cancer from coming back uh, any any further. Uh, and there are also a number of trials in some of the newer chemotherapy agents uh, that, uh, that, uh, that Drs. Chris and Daly were talking about and seeing how they interact uh, with radiation. And there are even some trials looking at the different doses of radiation for uh, a, a less common type of lung cancer called small cell lung cancer. So if the physician who is uh, going to be offering radiation discusses these clinical trials, they're certainly uh, worthwhile listening to and see if it's something that might be of interest to you. And thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Rosenzweig. And just so important um, to clarify the role of radiation oncology with everybody um, and how important it is and how it's delivered now. It's really very helpful. I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well, and thank you. Our next speaker is uh, Ms. Alicia Gilmore. Ms. Gilmore is a clinical instructor, clinical nutrition, University of Texas Southwest Medical Center in Dallas. And Ms. Gilmore will be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips, always an important topic. I'm going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Gilmore. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm happy to be part of today's presentation to um, talk about, of course, my favorite topic, which is nutrition. Uh, nutrition and hydration are, are vital for my patients to promote the best tolerance for treatment and to make sure that uh, you have the energy to do the things that you want to do every day. A priority for patients during treatment is to be sure that you're getting adequate protein, enough fluids, and calories. I always tell my patients, the better nourished you are, the better you will tolerate your treatment. Your needs for protein are higher during cancer treatment, so when eating meals and snacks, be sure to include those foods like animal proteins, eggs, cheese, dairy products, as well as beans, soy, nuts, nut butters, and seeds. I recommend that my patients eat these foods first, so if um, they get full, at least you got the protein in. You can also integrate uh, protein into nutrition drinks or smoothies or, or utilize those protein drinks that are available on the market to help meet your needs. Maintaining your hydration is essential. A good goal for fluid intake is to try to have at least 8 to 10 cups of fluid every day. This is equal to about a 2-liter bottle. So sometimes it's helpful to fill one of these up and make sure that you, you know, use that for all your fluids during the day or use four of those 16-ounce water bottles to help provide a visual cue or a visual reminder of how much you need to be drinking every day. Any fluid that's not caffeinated is a better choice. Of course, thinking water, but also juice, sports drinks, as well as uh, flavored waters. If you do have a cup or two or of um, coffee or tea, that's fine. Just make sure that you're taking lots of other kinds of non-caffeinated fluids during the day. I would caution you regarding drinking regular sodas or other beverages that contain a lot of added sugar. These are not the most nutritious ones because we are what we eat. But And if you're receiving treatment that causes dry mouth or less saliva, you could also increase your risk for uh, dental cavities. Um, some treatments, such as radiation, can require more fluid intake or some chemotherapies actually too. So talk to your healthcare team to understand your unique needs. Your calorie needs can change during your treatment. If you find that you're having difficulty meeting your energy and maintaining weight, you can try adding snacks between meals, um, choosing foods that are higher in calories when eating, like avocados on toast or cheese to your vegetables, olive oil to your pasta. Uh, you might also have to modify the texture of your foods. For example, sometimes softer foods are easier or cut up. I tell my patients if you can cut it with a fork, then that's pretty soft. Um, or foods that are well-cooked to help meet your needs. This is where sometimes incorporating liquid nutrition like smoothies with protein or other nutrition drinks that can be used to help support your body. 
When your nutrition needs are not met by your diet, your body uses protein found in your muscles for energy, which can uh, cause you to be more tired, um, not give you the energy you need to do what you want to do during the day, and may affect your lean body mass. Even if you're overweight, you can still be malnourished. Meeting with a dietitian may be helpful for you as they can provide you with your specific calorie, protein, and fluid needs as well as information on diet modification. There's medications um, that can help with side effects from treatment, and as Dr. Daly mentioned, um, you want to let your healthcare team know what's going on as soon as those symptoms arrive so that they can help you. If you're experiencing side effects when you're eating, keep a record of what you ate and the side effects that you experienced at that time, and you can share that with your dietitian or healthcare team um, so they can help uh, troubleshoot what's going on. In closing, there's several members of your healthcare team that are dedicated to patients uh, undergoing treatment for lung cancer. Know your team, know how to reach them, and the sooner that you get in touch with them about what's going on, the better. Uh, thank you for allowing me to be part of this workshop, and I'll, I'll pass the line back to you, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Gilmer. That was really wonderful, and, and thank you. Excellent. And I know there'll be questions for you. Always questions for dietitians during these programs, so absolutely thank you. Um, and our next speaker is uh, Wynne Burkle. Mr. Burkle is a Cancer Care's um, Director of Social Services, Long Island office, and he is our Lung Cancer Program Coordinator at Cancer Care. Uh, Mr. Burkle is going to address Cancer Care's free support programs and services, um, and I'm, it's my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, um, uh, Mr. Burkle. Thank you, Carolyn. You know, I'm, I'm sure most of us remember the, the time that we moved into our first new home or even our last new home, and I'm sure most of us wondered how we were ever going to find our way in this new community or neighborhood. Many of us were fortunate enough to get a visit from a welcome wagon or maybe a very helpful neighbor who helped us find the nearest supermarket, service station, house of worship, school, and all the other services so essential to support our daily life. The more things we were able to connect to in our new neighborhood, the more we felt that we think had things under control. You know, being diagnosed with lung cancer is in some ways very much like moving into a new neighborhood. Our cancer pushes us into a strange and sometimes scary new environment, and we really don't know where anything is and what we can do to get some control over a very difficult change in our lives. Fortunately, cancer care serves in the role of that good neighbor who is there to help you find your way in this strange new place. Here's how. Cancer Care's user-friendly website, www.cancercare.org, in addition to providing a wealth of cancer information and topics, serves as a convenient entry point to connect with the many services which Cancer Care makes available free of charge for lung cancer patients and those who care for them. These services include such things as education and a wide range of supportive assistance resources. Let's look at these services in a bit more detail. Cancer Care's educational program reaches out to include its array of Connect Education workshops, which provide information on coping with the physical and emotional impact of cancer, such as today's workshop, as well as informative workshops on diagnosis-specific cancer topics. Replays of these workshops are available both online at Cancer Care's website, www.cancercare.org, and via your phone. Many folks find it convenient to download these replays to the iPads and MP3 players. And while we're talking about personal electronics, if you have an iPhone, do check out the Cancer Care Meditation app, which features guided meditation sessions and inspirational talks, as well as 100 hours of free, beautiful, soothing music and natural sounds to address the needs of people with lung cancer. Catch it at the App Store. 
The education program also provides Cancer Care's well-known Cancer Care Connect booklets, which are available free of charge and are packed with up-to-date information on treatments and the latest coping strategies to help cancer patients and those who care for them. Over the years, we've distributed millions of these very popular publications. While one is at our website, they can also sign up for Cancer Care's popular free e-newsletter or catch up with our latest informative CopeLink blogs. Cancer Care support services are provided by its professionally trained staff of experienced oncology social workers who are there to assist folks like you in dealing with the many issues which arise from the diagnosis of lung cancer. These issues may include assistance with emotional issues in which they assess clients and provide appropriate, helpful psychosocial interventions or assistance with practical issues such as financial assistance through Cancer Care's limited financial assistance program and referrals to the Cancer Care Copay Assistance Foundation and other financial assistance resources. Assistance in resource finding in which our social workers refer folks to the many organizations and agencies established to help cancer patients. Assistance in navigating the system in which cancer care social workers assist people in understanding how to best manage the many new relationships involved in health care. And assistance in communications in which our workers are skilled at helping folks learn how to best communicate with their health care providers, employers, friends, and family members about their new situation. Cancer care social workers provide this assistance in a variety of friendly settings, such as at Cancer Care's national office and its regional offices in the tri-state New York metropolitan area, where folks can receive individual and group counseling face-to-face, or over the phone, where people from across the nation can find immediate assistance by contacting the Cancer Care Helpline, which is 1-800-813-HOPE, H-O-P-E, and longer-term assistance through individual telephone counseling with a cancer care social worker, as well as connecting with other people in professionally facilitated telephone support groups, and also online where people from across the country share concerns in professionally-led online support groups, which are available 24-7 for participation. Our popular support groups, whether for patient or caregiver, and whether they're experienced in face-to-face, online, or telephone modalities, provide the group member with a safe place to share the burdens, feelings, and stress with others who are involved in a very similar situation. There's no need to explain yourself in a support group. They know what you're talking about. Group members share helpful tips and information on how to best cope with the experience of lung cancer. So many of our support group members talk about belonging to that special family which helps them live with lung cancer each day. The professional facilitator skills of Cancer Care's oncology social workers ensure that each support group is maintained as a special place for each and every member. In the recent words of one of my lung cancer support group members, Wynn, I love coming to group on my good days, but it is so essential and helpful for me on my bad days to have my group buddies loving and caring for me. Call us today to learn more about this wonderful resource. You know, I'm sure none of us ever expected to find ourselves moved to the neighborhood of lung cancer, but now that you're here, be assured that Cancer Care, like that good neighbor, is there with you. Connect with us at www.cancercare.org or by calling us at 1-800-813-HOPE. Thank you. 
Oh, thank you so much, Wynne. That was really excellent and just a wonderful description of all the services of cancer care. And now I want to introduce uh, Ms. Linda Wenger. Um, and Ms. Wenger is um, he's co- uh, collaborating with us on today's program. Um, and she is the Senior Vice President of Marketing and Communications with Longevity Foundation, a very important resource for all of you to know about. And uh, Ms. Wenger is going to be addressing Longevity Foundation's free programs and services and the Longevity Lung Cancer Helpline. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Wagner. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Mesner. Longevity Foundation is empowering patients to be active decision makers in their treatment process through our educational resources, our online peer-to-peer support, and our in-person survivorship programs. Um, as Dr. Mesner and Wynn just mentioned, there's a lung cancer helpline, and we have created this in collaboration and partnership with Cancer Care. It's a toll-free personalized support for patients and caregivers with oncology social workers who are trained in all kinds of areas specific to lung cancer patients, including emotional, financial, and support challenges. And the Lung Cancer Helpline is 844-360-LUNG, 844-360-LUNG. Longevity also has what I think is one of the best websites for information on lung cancer. Uh, If you go to longevity.org and look for Lung Cancer 101, you'll find the comprehensive medically vetted guide with everything you need to know about your type of lung cancer, your treatment options, And it's written in easy-to-understand language. It has videos. It has questions that you can download to ask your doctor. There's an amazing glossary. I think you'll find it very helpful. And the website also has a clinical trial finder where you can enter your diagnosis and treatment history, your location, and it'll find clinical trials that you might be eligible for, either near you or somewhere across the country. Some of you might be aware of some of Longevity's uh, extensive support and survivorship programs. The one I'd like to start with is Lifeline, which is a one-to-one support in which we match patients and caregivers to mentors who have similar experiences. These support relationships uh, for Lifeline do happen on the phone um, if you're not close to each other, but we find that many of our Lifeline partners meet each other in person at our International Lung Cancer Survivorship Conference. This conference is held every spring in Washington, D.C., You may have heard of it as the HOPE Summit, but it's been reimagined to um, have special sessions for caregivers and the newly diagnosed. And we bring together survivors, caregivers, advocates, and medical experts to learn about all the new advances in lung cancer, as well as how to live well with the disease. And the conference has um, travel scholarships for first-time attendees, so you may want to come to longevity.org to look up the Survivorship Conference. Patients and caregivers can also receive peer-to-peer support and information online through our 22 Lung Cancer Support Community Message Boards, which are moderated mostly by patients, as well as 18 private Facebook groups. And these might include biomarker groups, caregiver groups, even a Hope Summit alumni for keeping in touch with people throughout the year. And Longevity has downloadable materials available to help you learn about lung cancer, I'll point out our 12 comprehensive patient education booklets. They're written and illustrated clearly to help patients understand their diagnosis and treatment options, and the titles cover such things as every type of lung cancer, 
lung cancer staging, clinical trials, biomarker testing, and various treatment types, including immunotherapy. And there are so many programs, I can't mention them all, but you should always feel free to reach out to us at info at longevity.org, and we'll help you find the service that you need. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, um, thank you very much, um, Ms. Wagner. That was really outstanding, and what a wonderful resource for everybody on this call um, to take advantage of this wonderful service. And I want to thank all of the speakers. Now we've had plenty of time for questions, and I'm going to ask um, that um, uh, we have our um, that you have a chance to ask questions now, so that. Um, So Sonia is going to go ahead and tell you how to queue up for questions. So we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Sonia? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star then one. So we have a question from one of our online participants, um, and this would be for Dr. Rosenzweig. Um, why wouldn't you always use proton therapy since it's so precise? Uh, there are a number of reasons you wouldn't use protons. Uh, one is the availability. There are only 30 proton machines throughout the country, so not every patient who's getting radiation um, can physically get onto a proton machine. Uh, but more importantly, it's just not necessary for the vast majority of treatments. An analogy I like to use is a samurai sword is perhaps the most precise and technologically advanced cutting instrument, but you wouldn't want to use it to put cream cheese on your bagel. Um, you're going to, a regular flat knife is going to do a much better job than that, even though it's a less precise uh, instrument. So for lung cancer, you really only want to use protons when there's a specific uh, situation where it's going to be helpful. And not to get too technical, uh, protons do travel a little um, unpredictably in air, and so for, uh, for many lung cancers where the tumor is surrounded completely by air, uh, there is a sense that uh, protons you know, might be a little less predictable in how they deliver dose. So that's another reason to potentially um, be careful about that. Excellent. Thank you. Um, does anyone else want to add anything to that? Or? Okay. And then we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, when is a liquid biopsy warranted, Dr. Daly, if you could address that question? Sure. I think um, we have, we're growing, as Dr. Chris said, in our knowledge of using liquid biopsies. But oftentimes where liquid biopsies come into play in practice is in a patient who might have be, it might be difficult to get that tissue sample in order to do the molecular diagnostic. So a patient who has a hard-to-access tumor to biopsy, it might be warranted to proceed with the liquid biopsy in order to get that so important genomic information that helps to shape the oncologist's treatment decisions. 
Another instance where you might use a liquid biopsy is potentially for a patient who is medically frail, and in which case, though you have the diagnosis, you're not able to get that extra tissue that might be necessary to do the genomic sequencing, and then you would use a liquid biopsy in that place as well. There's also a lot of clinical trials looking at how liquid biopsies can be better incorporated into how we're treating patients. So for a patient who is on one of those targeted therapies that Dr. Chris was describing, if we are starting to see progression in their disease, meaning their disease is growing despite that therapy, then we might send a liquid biopsy at that time in order to see if there's any new mutation there that is causing uh, a resistance. And oftentimes we can get that liquid biopsy back sooner than proceeding with the tissue biopsy, although that remains the gold standard. So those were, would be some scenarios where you would use a liquid biopsy. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, we have another question in front of our online participants. Um, um, since, and this will be for Dr. Daly, since squamous lung cancer typically doesn't have markers, are there any new treatments for squamous lung cancer patients that cannot do immunotherapy due to complications? Due to complications, yeah. So I think what, we, what, what I would recommend is that for a squamous cell, a patient with squamous cell lung cancer, oftentimes what we will do is genomic profiling of those tumors as well because there might be an, an option for a targeted therapy in that patient as well, especially in on-protocol treatment. So um, in, the, in the realm of clinical trials, patients with squamous cell lung cancer can often benefit from that genomic profiling too. Excellent. Um, and we have a telephone question, I understand. Um, Sonia? Thank you. And our first question comes from Agnes M. Your line is now open. Hello. Can you hear me? Hello. Yes. Hi, Agnes. Yes. Hi. Okay. Hi. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I had a question regarding side effects of uh, targeted therapy, specifically to Griso. Um taking that medication now for about a year and a half at this point almost. And I'm, I'm having problems with fungal nail infections. Have you seen that? Do you have any recommendations on treatment? Unfortunately, I'm allergic to the main medications used for fungal infections, itraconazole, so it's been a struggle. And the uh, medication you're taking again? Oh, okay. Dr. Dale, do you want to <laughs> Oh no, certainly. I'm I'm sorry to hear about your your struggles with that. Um, so, as you as you're aware, osimertinib or Tegrisso can cause a skin reaction or rash in, a, in greater than 50% of patients, and in 10% of those patients, it can be moderate to severe. In addition to the rash, you can see um, breakdown in the in the nails as well. As far as yeah. the specifics of a of a fungal infection, it is not something I've had. Um, well, it's a lot in of the it. nails. It's on my nails. Yeah, it's not mm -hmm. something that I've had a lot of experience treating um, for patients who who are in, unable to tolerate um, the itraconazole. So it's not something I've seen a lot of. Would it be something that she would consult a. Um Dermatologist or infectious disease doctor, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Have, have, oh, sorry. Go ahead. 
excellent. Now that would be, yeah. Please, oh, please go ahead. Sorry. No, I think that would be right, and we'll often partner with our dermatologists here for patients who are having that type of reaction to our targeted therapies. And do you want to mention about supportive care as well? Does that would they be would they be part of that department? Do you think, or um, is it? I know Memorial has its own um, dermatology department. Some don't, um, but would they supportive care be able to address this as well? I think this would be better addressed by dermatology. I think because it's very specific. I think um, supportive care is invaluable to the treatment of patients um, with lung cancer and they have a lot of expertise in many of the symptoms we commonly encounter, such as decreased appetite, fatigue, pain, dehydration, trouble with sleep, trouble with mood. They can be invaluable partners in helping us mitigate those symptoms and helping us monitor and manage them over time. But this this, this specific issue, I think, would be better addressed um, by dermatology. Thank you so much. And our next question, uh, Sonia, one of our telephone questions. And our next question comes from Alice S. Your line is now open. And Alice, if your phone is on mute, please unmute. And Alice S., your line is now open. Oh, thank you so much. My question was answered on the squamous lung cancer patients, um, but I would like a follow-up on that. If you do not have any markers once you have had gen- genomic testing, are they doing any trial trials for squamous people now? So if there's if they're unable to tolerate immunotherapy, correct, was the first part of the question? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think so, yes. Unable to tolerate immunotherapy and have, have have not had molecular testing done, I think that the, they would be limited in the potential uh, trial options at that point. Um, most of the protocols are looking at targeting specific mutations or looking at immunotherapy combinations or for patients whose tumors become resistant to immunotherapy, how to overcome that resistance. So I think that would be kind of where the the clinical trial um, research is really focused right now. But, but potentially there would be there would yes. be an ability to integrate other modalities of therapy as well. So radiation, surgery, as Dr. Chris said. So it would be important to better understand the clinical context that this would be would be being asked. And Dr. Rosenzweig, do you want to add anything to that as well for a squamous cell? No, I, th- I think that pretty much just answers it. Um, in radiation, we really don't make as much of a distinct, distinguishing between uh, squamous cell and adenocarcinoma, so it's a little bit one size fits all between those two histologies. For small cell lung cancer, which we haven't talked about much today, we do use somewhat different uh, dosing regimen. Thank you. Um, And so here's a question um, which a few of you may want to weigh in on. Um, What is the difference um, between supportive care and palliative care? Dr. Um, Daly, do you want to start with that? And then Dr. Rosenzweig and then any any others who want to add to that? 
Sure. I mean, at our institution, they're one and the same. So supportive care and palliative care are both focused on um, mitigation of symptoms, improving quality of life, um, and helping patients tolerate treatment better. So we use those those names interchangeably here. Um, I think how it's evolved over the course of, of my practice in oncology is that we've come to understand that integrating those services sooner in our patients um, with cancer really has provided benefit when you look at um, outcomes across the clinical spectrum, including quality of life, mood, even survival. So um, there's a real understanding now that collaborating with um, those physicians and those nurses and nurse practitioners really has a lot of benefit for our patients. Thank you. And Dr. Rosenzweig, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I, I agree. There's, there's not much of a difference uh, between the two. You know, I tend to think of it, um, and Dr. Daly was referring to this on the previous question, you know, supportive oncology can help with very specific symptoms uh, that you expect to get better, you know, such as uh, uh, difficulty eating, loss of appetite, uh, that you expect uh, to have some improvement and where medications and uh, consultation might be of benefit. Uh, and palliative care can also include uh, non-cancer entities, so they, they can be split up. But in a lot of ways, their services and goals and philosophies overlap. So it's a little bit just depending on how that hospital or cancer center uh, just names their their different departments and, and different services. Excellent. Thank you. Very helpful. And um, uh, Ms. Langer, do you want to comment on that as well? Uh, it's not an area that I have any expertise in. I'm sorry. Mr. Burkle, do you want to comment as well? Yeah, I, I just want to un underscore that palliative care is oftentimes considered to be hospice care, and it's very important for folks to know that palliative care is not hospice care. While palliative care may be a part of hospice services, palliative care stands alone, and it doesn't mean that you're at, at the end of uh, uh, treatment. Palliative care is, is an important service that, as, as was uh, originally um, mentioned just now, uh, should be initiated early on, uh, at, oftentimes at, at the onset right behind diagnosis. So uh, I, I think that uh, it was great that the, the, term, the terms were brought up, and uh, I think it's, it's important for people to understand that it's providing, okay, the quality of life that's so important throughout the an entire range of treatment. Excellent. Thank you so much for saying that, Wynn, in the way you did, because it's really important to understand that. I mean, there's a lot of um, sometimes confusion, so these terms really are really to address from the point of diagnosis of any cancer. That's true for all cancers, that any side effect, any treatment side effect that you're experiencing, that it be addressed and that it be treated and managed or prevented to some extent. So that that's really important. Thank you. Um, and... Um, we have a question from Ms. Gilmore. Is there a specific diet for lung cancer patients? Oh, <laughs> um, no. <laughs> um, no, there's no specific diet for, I think, any, for, I mean, there is, that's a really hard question to answer because it, it probably really depends on where you are in your journey. Uh, for someone who may be uh, going through treatment, 
then the recommendation would be weight maintenance, making sure you're getting adequate protein, making sure that, you know, if you're having difficulty um, eating or drinking, that you're working with someone to help manage that to keep your strength up and keep your energy up um, so that you can continue to get your treatment on time. But as far as um, after treatment, then it would be, one, making sure that, you know, you've recovered and um, you, your symptoms are well controlled. Um, and then at that point, uh, there is research that indicates following a more plant-based diet so there's more fruits, more vegetables, more whole grains, um, choosing those foods that have, are great sources of phytochemicals, foods that have a lot of color in it, foods that are high in vitamin C and vitamin E. And I want to be clear that the research supports choosing those foods over taking supplements because there is no indication um, that supports that supplements will help um, in, in the fight for cancer. It's more about choosing those particular foods. Um, and then plant-based also, of course, incorporates um, those beans and those nuts and those legumes, um, choosing animal proteins in moderation, watching your intake of red meat, choosing more fish, more chicken, um, and then, of course, being at a, a healthy weight. Well, thank you. Um, I actually want to thank all our speakers. I know we could go on really for quite a bit more time. There are more questions in queue, but I would say this is a one-hour program, and so I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been really phenomenal, and it's just a great team of speakers, I must say. And we also um, uh, actually want to thank all the participants who asked such really great questions. And I know some of you still have questions in queue, so I do want to right away address that. Um, so for those of you either who asked a question and, and got your question addressed today, or for those of you who haven't had your question addressed, we definitely recommend that you all go back to your treating healthcare team with the information you learned today and share it with your healthcare team. Um, however, I know that many of you like to go to credible sites to to get information. And so because we know we are partnering today with the Longevity um, Foundation, and we're doing that because they are a credible site and they specialize specifically in lung cancer, but I would definitely recommend that you would um, access their site um, at uh, longevity.org. And actually you'll be, getting in your, you'll be getting an evaluation after today's program, probably tomorrow. Um, and, and when you get the evaluation, it will include all the resources we mentioned during the program. So we will again mention all the other lung cancer organizations we talked about um, that are on the brochure about the organizations. But we also will, will focus specifically on Longevity Foundation and specifically on their helpline as well. That's a wonderful resource and their website, of course, as well. Um, so that's a wonderful resource. And, of course, um, for those of you who want to pursue the National Cancer Institute, we will include their 800 number and also their website, which has a live chat feature that you can also um, post a question that's good for people both in the U.S. and internationally as well. So um, those are two resources. And, of course, for those of you who want to pursue further help from cancer care, whether it be to get some practical assistance or counseling or just some support with um, some questions you may have, you can go ahead and, and call Cancer Care as well or visit our website and post your question there. So I hope that gives you some range of places to contact. We will be giving you a, a fairly extensive list of resources to contact, um, and we'll highlight um, you know, those three probably in particular. Um, and um, most importantly, when we conclude the program today, we would not want any one of you to feel you're alone. We do know that you do sometimes feel alone, of course, um, but we want you to know that you're part of a, a large network of support that is available to you. Um, it's available to you actually um, in some instances around the clock in terms of the websites and in terms of some of the services that are offered, um, online support groups, 
um, some of the things that are available, um, you know, from different organizations. So we will, we want you to know that there's really services out there for you, and they're often free. That's really important to know as well, and so to take advantage of them. Also to bring your healthcare team in whenever you can. If you have a question or concern about your treatment, definitely, of course, you want to discuss that with your treatment team, or if you have a treatment side effect that you're experiencing, you will call your team right away and let them know that. I also want to let you know that we have an, a part two to this program. So this is part one um, on progress in the treatment of lung cancer. And then part two is for caregivers, practical tips for coping with your loved one's lung cancer during the holidays. And that will take place on November 19th. So you'll hear about that one as well. So again, I want to thank you all for being on this program today, for your participation and your listening on the program today. And um, we look forward to your participating in the next program and in other programs that we offer. Thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participate for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.